Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome to the Truth of Power show. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and this is Radio Free Brooklyn. On today's show, we're going to be having Joel Fendelman, director of the film Man on Fire. In just a moment, uh, we're going to be having our talk. But to uh, introduce the themes of the work, Man on Fire, and to talk a little bit about uh, racism and uh, issues of race, I'm going to be reading a little bit from When They Called You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matters memoir by Patrice Khan Colors and Asha Bandali. This is from the introduction, We Are Stardust. I write to keep in contact with our ancestors and to spread truth to people. Sonia Sanchez. <clears throat> Days after the election of 2016, Asha sent me a link to talk to a talk by phys- astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. We had to have hope, she says to me across 3,000 miles. She in Brooklyn, me in Los Angeles. We listened together as Dr. deGrasse Tyson explains that the very atoms and molecules in our bodies are traceable to the crucibles in the center of stars that once upon a time exploded into gas clouds. And those glass clouds formed our stars, and those stars possessed the divine right mix of properties needed to create not only planets, including our own, but also people, including us, me and her. He is saying that not only are we in the universe, but that the universe is in us. He's saying that we, human beings, are literally made out of stardust. And I know when I hear Dr. Degrassi Tyson say this, that he's telling the truth, because I've seen it since I was a child. The magic, the stardust we are, and the lives of the people I come from. I watched it in the labor of my mother, a Jehovah's Witness, and a woman who has worked two and sometimes three jobs at a time, keeping other people's children, working the reception desks at gyms, telemarketing, doing anything and everything for 16 hours a day, the whole of my childhood in the Van Nuys Barrio, where we lived. My mother, cocoa brown and smooth, Disowned by her family for the children she had as a very young and unmarried woman, my mother never giving up despite never having made a living wage. I saw it in the thin brown face of my father, a boy out of Cajun country, a wounded healer whose addictions were born of a world that did not love him and told him so not once but constantly. My father, who also always came back, who never stopped trying to be a version of himself there were no mirrors for. And I knew it because I am the thir- 13th generation progeny of a people who survived the hulls of slave ships, survived the chains, the whips, the months laying in their own shit and piss, the human beings legislated not, as not human beings, who watched their names, their languages, their gods, goddesses and gods, the arch of their dances and the beats of their songs, the ma- majesty of their dreams, their very families snatched up and stolen, disassembled and discarded, and despite this built language, an honored God and created movement upheld love. What could they be but stardust, these people who refused to die, who refused to accept the idea that their lives did not matter, that their children's lives did not matter? Our foreparents imagined our families out of whole cloth. They imagined each individual one of us. They imagined me. They had to. It is the only way I'm here today, a mother and a wife, a community organizer and queer, an artist and a dreamer, learning to find hope while navigating the shadows of hell, even as I know it might have been otherwise.
I was not expected or encouraged to survive. My brothers and little sister, my family, the one I was born into and the one I created, were not expected to survive. We lived a precarious life on a tightrope of poverty, bordered on each end with the politics of personal responsibility that black pastors and then the first black president preached. They preached that more than they preached a commitment to collective responsibility. They preached it more than they preached about what it meant to be the world's wealthiest nation, yet the place with the extraordinary employment and extraordinary lack of livable wages and extraordinary disruption of basic opportunity. And they preached that more than they preached about America having 5% of the world's population, but 25% of its prison population, a population of which for a long time included my disabled brother and gentle father, who was never raised, who never raised a hand to another human being, and a prison population that, with extraordinary deliberation today, excludes the man who shot and killed a 17-year-old boy who was carrying Skittles and iced tea. There was a petition that was drafted and circulated all the way to the White House. It said we were terrorists. We, who in response to the killing of that child, said Black Lives Matter. The document gained traction during the first week of July 2016 after a week of protests against the black-to-black -black police killing of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge and Phil Castile in Minneapolis. At the end of that week, on July 7th in Dallas, Texas, a sniper opened fire during a Black Lives Matter protest, and that was populated with mothers and fathers who brought their children along to proclaim, we have the right to live. The sniper identified as 25-year-old Micah Johnson, an Army reservist home from Afghanistan, holed up in a building on the campus of Old Central College after killing five police officers and wounding 11 others, including two protesters. In the early morning of July 8, 2016, he became the first individual ever to be blown up by local law enforcement. They used a military-grade bomb against Micah Johnson and programmed a robot to deliver it to him. No jury, no trial. No patience like the patience shown, the killers who gunned down nine worshippers in Charleston or moviegoers in Aurora, Colorado. Of course, we will never know what his motivation really were, and we will never know if he was mentally unstable. We will only know for sure that the single organization to which he ever belonged was the U.S. Army. And we will remember that the white men who were mass killing in Aurora and Charleston were taken alive, and one was fed fast food on the way to jail. We remember that most of the cops who were killed in this nation are killed by white men who are taken alive. And we will experience all the ways the ghost of Micah Johnson will be weaponized against Black Lives Matters, will be weaponized against me, a tactic from the way back that has continuously been used against people who challenge white supremacy. We will remember that Nelson Mandela remained on the FBI's list of terrorists until 2008. Even still, the accusation of being a terrorist is devastating, and I allow myself space to cry quietly as I lie in bed on a Sunday morning, listening to a red-faced, hysterical Rudolf Giuliani spit lies about three days after, da after Dallas. Like many of the people who embody our movement, I have lived my life between the twin terrors of poverty and the police. Coming of age in the drug war climate that was ratcheted up by Ronald Reagan and Neville Clinton. The neighborhood where I lived and loved and the neighborhoods where many of my members of the Black Lives Matter movement have lived and loved were designated war zones and the enemy was us. The fact that more white people have used and sold drugs 
than brown and black people, and yet when we close our eyes and think of a drug dealer or user, the face we most often see is black or brown, tells you what you need to know if you cannot readily imagine how someone can be doing no harm and yet be harassed by police. Literally breathing when black becomes cause for arrest or worse. I carry the memory of living under that terror, the terror of knowing that I or any other member of my family could be killed with impunity in my blood and my bones in every step I take. And yet I was called a terrorist. The members of our movements are called terrorists. We, me, Alicia Garza and Opal Tomiti, the three women who founded Black Lives Matter are called terrorists. We, the people, we are not terrorists. I am not a terrorist. I am a survivor. I am stardust. This is from When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir by Patrice Khan Kluris and Asha Bandali. Now, before we get to our interview with Joel Fendelman, uh, director of the film Man on Fire, we'll listen in a song by Winter, the band Winter. I um, listened to them play live from their song, their album Ethereality in Los Angeles this past weekend. Their album Ethereality was released earlier this month and is available wherever music is found. The song is called Black Sea and it's from that album. Please enjoy and then we'll get to our interview with Joel Fendelman uh, in just a moment. Thank you.
So welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and today I'm with Joel Fendelman, um, a filmmaker with roots in Miami, Austin, and New York City. Joel has written, produced, and directed a number of award-winning narrative and documentary films. Joel most recently was received an IDA Documentary Award for his fourth feature film, Man on Fire, uh, a documentary about a white Texan um, preacher who self-emulated in his birth town of Grand Saline in Texas in order to bring attention to the unrepentant racism there. The film used the act as a vehicle to explore racism in a small town in East Texas and indirectly America as a whole. Man on Fire premiered in the Sundance um, Film Festival. Sundance. Uh, Slam Dance. Oh, Slam Dance. Film Fest, sorry. Slam Dance Film Fest in January. So welcome. Welcome, Joel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Vijay, for having me. Thank you. So uh, why don't we start a little bit about you as a person, as a filmmaker, where your major interests are and how, uh, you know, maybe give an overview of what you've made so far, the films you've done, and uh, how Manifire falls into that. Well, so as you mentioned, it's my fourth feature film and uh, made a number of shorts as well. I guess there's there's I guess some themes that definitely carry throughout all my films and whether it's looking at questions of identity or looking at class, looking at race, particularly in this one, looking at ethnicity. So these are things I'm interested in exploring. Uh, and also really on an even deeper level, I'm interested in using film as a way to heal something within myself, something I'm trying to figure out. So my first feature, David, about a Muslim boy and a Jewish boy and their friendship, I know I was dealing with questions of identity and questions of my own faith and what really separates us, what brings us together. So that through that process, I figured it all out. Well, not, not really, but <laughs> I figured out something. And uh, and then I looked at a film, made a film, Remittance, that was based in Singapore, about a Filipino woman traveling there to work as a live-in maid. And I really was able to look at questions of class and and what separates us in that way, as well as just a whole world of migrant workers that I had no idea about. And now I'm looking at small-town America, which is in the South, parts in the South, which is my backyard, per se, you know, in a worldly sense. But yeah, I had nothing, know very little about and feel very uh, alien to in many ways. But yet this is, whether we're in the North and we say, hey, this is the South, that's a whole different thing. But it is America and it's our obligation and to own that. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying that uh, you find the subject matter, like in this particular film, how did you discover the subject matter? Or any, or any of the films, how do you discover that, connect with the subject matter in regards to the... You were discussing about, um, you know, the, finding a place within yourself and ref, that reflects the subject matter. So if you could talk a little bit about how you discover your subject matter, in particular Man Film or Man Fire or um, any of the films, yeah. I think, so to discover subject matter, sometimes it's just a very, it just kind of works out. But I think there's a deeper thing flowing there. I mean, when I, so when I did David... I had this experience in the subway and I saw this Muslim man and I had these thoughts that he was a terrorist and he had a bag with him that was a bomb. And like that was a, a, a seedling to think to, for me to start to question myself and why am I having these thoughts? I need to learn more about this. 
which led me to volunteer in Muslim neighborhoods in South Brooklyn, which then evolved into the film. Mm-hmm. In, in, uh, so in, um, in Remittance, I, my, my partner on the film was living in Singapore and he told me about this idea. And I said, oh, that really resonates. Let's explore this further. And I went out there and we started to write this. For Man on Fire, I was at University of Texas, Austin. I decided to go back and get my master's in film. And it was my third year coming up. My neighbor's girlfriend said, hey, I have this friend where I teach up in Dallas that has this, uh, he's doing his research in this small town where he's from about this guy who set himself on fire a few years back. And this happened in 2014, so it's not long ago. And he thinks it would be a good film and you guys should talk. He's not a filmmaker, but he wants to do something. So we spoke and it ended up really working out and... I mean, I read, I learned about the story and about what this guy did and it it spoke to me like all these. So practically it came kind of easy, but it also spoke to me in deep level in something I need to pursue in that moment. And that's just how it worked out. Yeah. I mean, I watched the film. Thank you for the opportunity to watch the film. And uh, it's so, uh, so deep and, and reflective. It provokes some kind of meditative space on topics that, uh, sometimes are treated in kind of, you know, um, I know sometimes we see in the in the media like the way they treat uh, these topics is very like you know. But it had a very meditative space where we allowed you allowed in the film for those who haven't seen it, um, you allowed the people of Grand Saline to speak about the the events surrounding and their perspective on the racism and the perceived racism and and the. And, and their perspectives on race and racism in their community and allow them just to, to share and um, give their perspectives. And I think it speaks a lot to the the way the film is constructed, that it allows, it doesn't kind of get, be heavy-handed or rather gives a, uh, allows them to express their views. So you talk about the, the, the thinking of the artistic process of the film and how you, because uh, how you were able to generate that organically or, yeah. So, so James Chase Sanchez, who is my producer on the film and is the guy I was just speaking about as far as doing his research in Grand Saline and from there. And so we partnered to make the film. We spoke about it a little bit over the course of six months. And then I was finishing up some projects at the time. And then May hit. And of this is of 2015, 16, I think 16. And right, let's go out there. So it was a four-hour drive from where I was living in Austin. We met there and just started talking to people and started, we didn't bring a camera, I bring a photography camera and just took some photos. And that was the beginning of it. And I had some ideas aesthetically I wanted to, to contain everything in, but it really started by just showing up. And so we went there, we spent a few days, we set up some interviews got to know some people, and then we came back uh, a few weeks later. And at that point, I got the camera, and the, and I decided, okay, we're going to film this in, a, in a, certain, a certain aesthetic that was important. Because I didn't know exactly at the time what the film was going to be. I knew we're going there. This guy set himself on fire in this small town to protest racism. And the question is, well, why did he do this? Is the town as racist as he thought? And did it affect the town? And those are the questions pretty much of the film. 
and we're going there to explore. Now, what is going to come from that? I don't know. Are people are going to talk to us. Are they not going to talk to us? Who exactly do we need to interview? But these were, it was very vague at that point, but by setting up an aesthetic, like, okay, we're going to film interviews in this way with this lens and the location they sit in is going to be just as much a character as the person. So we're going to have a very, very wide lens and then we're going to film these steady cam like shots through the town and shoot establishing shots in this way. And if we just do everything within that language, then we don't, we can be open ended a little bit in what we film. We can keep, we can film a lot of things. And if, as long as it's in that aesthetic, it feels very deliberate. Yeah. So, um, now that the, um, film also allows for it's kind of it's only it's under an hour as far as the length goes i always feel like there's more to explore and uh you know and uh the scope of the film is more things to say about um you know the uh the topic and there's there's always something more to say and um you know uh the um so let's talk a little bit more about the interviews and the people who are there sharing because you, you're able to splice together, you're able to cut together like some, you had to go outside of the area to find, because I know in that community, you know, when I read and when I've kind of researched or whatever, um, you know, Grand Saline is like uh, mostly white, I guess, and you had to go outside of the area to find perspectives from uh, black Americans uh, living in the outlying areas and how, you know, their perspectives kind of inform the perspectives of those in the town. And some of them were kind of like not really acknowledging that there was a, a racism or the, a bias even, I would say. Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about kind of how bias and racism, because racism is such a charged word. You know, we think about racism as being such a loaded idea, but there's also ideas of bias and how people are socialized, where, where they're comfortable, who they connect with, and how that's kind of comes through in the film, that when the people are sharing how their biases come up, you know? So, or, or just in general in America, how we have this, insular bubbles that we live in and uh, what's your perspective how your perspective of the topic has changed after interviewing the uh, people yeah yeah sure so so my partner james <clears throat> chase sanchez is a doctorate in critical race theory mm-hmm. so usually when they throw me this question i say hey chase what do you think <laughs> about this and yeah he's got his whole thing yeah i will say in the process of making this film i've learned a lot about myself and I've learned a lot about how to look at race and be more aware of it. When we think of the 1960s or earlier, we, we have these, especially during the civil rights movement, these, these ideas of what racism is and it's much more explicit. Mm-hmm. We think about lynchings, we think about segregation, white only, colored only, these type of things like, wow, yeah. that's racism. And we come to modern day and we don't see it for the most part as explicit as it, as it was. But in the making of this film and talking to people in small town, Southern East Texas, we start to see, okay, this is what modern day racism is. Mm. And it's like one of the lines in the film is the, uh, the guy says, we don't have racism anymore. We have a black president. <laughs> yeah. And it's such more subtler and, or, or someone responds to a question, uh, why, why don't, cause there's no black people that live in Grand Saline. 
And why is that? So we asked him, an old timer, that, and he says, "Well, they want to be with their own kind. You know, they there's no black churches here. They want to, they don't want to be here. They want to be with other black people. That's why they don't live here." And you know, maybe there's some level of truth to that, but I think there's a lot bigger picture to why the town to this day is almost all white. I think there's some some half black, half white people there and, and some Mexican people or Hispanics, but pretty much all white. So it's subdued, it's subtler, it's it's and Chase would speak much more much better of this of it's how we speak about things mm. that that is the modern day racism or bias. I'm not sure I mean, I guess racism is a form of bias, right? Yeah, it seems like it's the advanced form, maybe, or like the more overt or like bias being like kind of the, the beginning stages. And then you start to have more institutionalized and it combines with, you know, um, power structures and class. Then you start to have, like you're saying, these, you know, these opportunities are not available mm-hmm. because, you know, it's like more pervasive, I guess. But but the, in the in the film, it's like they're not, they're not distinct. They, you know, it seems like the the interviewees are like, you know, not this, realizing that they have maybe we all have bias and we all have our perspectives because we're all living among people who are, I guess, very similar, like minded. We're in our bubbles and such. So yeah, I'm mean, hearing your perspective on kind of you're talking a little bit about your own experiences as you know developing and 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 kind of integrating in these uh, how even Tayside being so divisive and so many people are, want to stay in their own bubbles and not acknowledge or understand other people's perspectives. Some of our other interviews are about empathy and about the need for empathy. So in all your films, I think, and I saw David as well, uh, which also deals with empathy, and you mentioned with uh, understanding cross-cultural boundaries and um, crossing, bringing bridges across those boundaries, yeah. yeah. It's the other that I think is the the root of of this bias, of this racism. It's when we don't, we don't know, we just... Oh, it's that person over there. Those people over there. Yeah. And in every scenario situation that I've been aware of, that once that other becomes someone who, oh, they're just like me, which is most most of the time the case, you realize, oh, they are just like me. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your influences and uh, creative influences or personal influences of people who inspire you or films that have inspired you and what kind of informs your aesthetic. So uh, if you talk a little bit about kind of growing up, maybe what you were watching or what's kind of over the years you've been uh, digesting to give a sense of how your aesthetic came about. Well, I grew up in Miami and my father had a, an art cinema. Mm-hmm. So maybe I was about 10. He had to give it up. But so I'm sure there was some influence and in seedling of that into me becoming a filmmaker. Yeah, he'd show the Rocky or Picture Show on Fridays. Not that I ever got to see it because I was too young, but <laughs> yeah. I would walk to watch for my birthday. We'd get to bring a film in and watch it, and it was fun. And I used to make videos about trick skating growing up, and that was my entryway into into film. And I think for each film I make, there's probably a different influence that I'm really attracted to. I remember when making David, I was really attracted to this film. This this film called Chop Shop, mm-hmm. which was made in Queens, like where you where you live. Yeah, and that was Ramin Bairani, and and I was very attracted to the authenticity and the real life element that he had in that film, mm-hmm. and the, the naturalness from the kid. So that from his actors, 
So that I, I still am very inspired by that film, but particularly for David, I was drawn to that. When we look at Man on Fire, I was very, or well, even way before this, but I was very influenced by Errol Morris and his approach to interviews and the deliberate nature of his filmmaking, which I really like. The way I read that he would have his interviews and actually the interviewee would look right into the lens because he'd have this special mechanism that he developed that's like a, that it was like a video screen that we could see, they could see him through the lens so that they would just talk to the lens. Oh, wow. So I was like, oh, that's interesting to really have that center frame talking right to the audience. So all his films are like that for the most part, I believe. So I, I really researched a ton of his films and I'd known them before, but I rewatched them and, and I liked the, the recreation elements that he, the cinematic elements and the sound design and the music that goes through. So that was probably my biggest influence in making Man on Fire. Good, good. So we'll return a little bit more to the subject matter of the film now. Um, so now the uh, pastor, um, the uh, the name was um, the name of the pastor. Yeah. Oh, so Charles Moore. Charles Moore, right, yeah. right. So there was also some question about uh, like how he was impacted by Tibetan monks, who you know the influence in his own psychology and uh, discussion of. Whether or not you know, it's it's, it's uh, left a little bit ambiguous about whether or not you know he was going through something emotionally, or whether I was really like he, he was. He spent years as a social justice advocating for social justice, and then he, he did this act to, I guess, respond to or protest racism, but uh, specifically about his own like how we can look at um, event uh, moments like this as whether or not it's a psychology of the individual, or whether or not it's like really the pathology of the community. And if you if you talk a little bit about what you think about, um, you know these kinds, of, it's a very dicey area because you know we, we think about uh, the Tibetan fight for freedom and uh, for independence and such, and how that how that set the tone for like, pro, and the protests in general have, you know, sometimes been very um, controversial or very difficult, you know. So specifically in regards to like. How, where we draw the line between the psychology of the individual and the pathology of the community, you know? So, Well, Charles Moore, the day that he self-immolated, he left a folder on his desk. And when he opened it up, on the front page was an image of Thikwan Duke. Mm-hmm. And Thikwan Duke was the, the Buddhist monk in Vietnam in the 60s who, who self-immolated, and it was a famous photograph. Mm. So he was very inspired by the self-immolations that to this day happen maybe every other week or so. Mm-hmm. I think I think there's been 150 over the last 10 to 12 years. Don't quote me on that, but there's been there's a, there's a bunch that still happen in Tibet to this mm-hmm. day. I believe the act of self-immolation is viewed very differently in the East than it is in the West, mm-hmm. or particularly in America. A lot of people write it off as it's crazy and Mm. i understand that perspective it's probably i think my perspective or at least my my knee-jerk reaction Mm. how could someone set themselves on fire there must be a level of insanity to it Mm. but in the east it's i believe it's it's thought of very differently and 
maybe respected in a different light. So he was very inspired by that, that way of protest. I mean, that, that is what inspired the Arab Spring in Tunisia. So it's definitely viewed differently. A lot of people in the town, when we interviewed and, and as someone sees the film, their gut reaction, I don't know if there's a gut reaction, their response to it is he was crazy and mm. he had mental problems and he, he didn't know what he was doing. Uh, it's hard for me to take that perspective because if you look at his life, he's a, he's a lifelong civil rights activist. In his writings, he spent two years preparing for this. It was, it was not a one-day spontaneous event. This was something that he planned. He even attempted to do it other times. And so it was very thought out in that manner. He was 79, and I, I don't know how much longer he was going to live anyway, and he decided he wanted to go out. He's going to go out. We're all going to go out. He decided he's going to use his death as a means of protest. And as I spoke to many of his colleagues and pastors, interesting response from them was they were shocked but not surprised. Mm. Very interesting, yeah. There was one other quote I think I pulled uh, was the easier thing to do is to move past it rather than sit with it. And sit. the idea of sitting with it and just being able to think about the implications and, and think about um, how it's not, how it just, what the meaning of it and just meditate on that and being able to not just be like, oh, it was dismissive attitude or it was just his pathology or his ideas, but rather it reflects and communicates with the larger whole that all individuals are part of this larger community, larger intersectionality of communities that, um, that he was trying to, like, you know, when we think about martyr, um, the idea of martyring oneself or martyring, uh, you know, kind of giving oneself to a higher purpose as you were saying about dedicating one's life to it and then, and also dedicating one's, you know, death to it. So, um, that was a quote from Jeff Hood and that's very much for the last few minutes of the film mm-hmm. where he says, grand Celine is trying to move past it instead of sitting with it. Yeah. And really, I think I see that as the message of the film when we're talking about whether Charles Moore or racism as a whole, we're all trying to move past it. Mm. We hear a, response many times oh that's that's back in the day like can we move on can you get over that yeah but we've never really sat with it Mm. as a whole i I think as a country as a community and that's what we need to do and that's what i think charles moore was trying to say is we gotta wake up and we gotta we gotta we gotta in his words repent for this and then we can move on once we do that yeah i mean even in this in this country we have all this controversy, this controversy around even less, not less, but like other forms of protest where with the kneeling and, and, and football games and things like that, where it's, that kind of brings attention to thematics of, of racism, thematics of violence against uh, minorities, against uh, the African community, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and the idea that any level, at any level, if we can start to engage these conversations and start to have these conversations, start to understand where that root is in our own experience and the experience of our communities. Uh, it's so important to have them and just to talk about uh, within ourselves and within our communities, you know, how that how we're all connected and how, um, you know, to have these dialogues, yeah. A lot of people 
I, I think, especially in the town, the near the towns of Grand Saline, that's that are there or heard about self-immolation of Charles Moore, I think by reacting to the, the craziness or the extremity of self-immolation, we might get caught up in that. And, and, and really, I mean, whether someone thinks he was crazy or not, somewhat beside the point, how about why he did it? So mm. we can push his level of, of sanity at that choice to the side and say, well, he still did this for a reason. Let's talk about that. Yeah. And we tend not to get past that. Let's say, oh, he was crazy, so everything he did is invalid. Mm. And I think that well, that's what the last line left home was like, well, no, that's, that's two different things. Yeah, I think definitely, I think that sitting with it for me also means kind of seeing within ourselves how we all have that uh, um, tendency towards bias or tendency towards racism. That we're all, I think we we're saying about. And many, many times it's like we're all recovering racists. I think I remember reading, uh, you know, that, that we're just kind of, we all have that bias and that, that influences. And being able to sit with that and also understand how the story of this man is like uh, reflective of our own potentialities of uh, stories of him and, and, and his community or all the potentialities that we can dedicate our lives to social justice, dedicate our lives to helping others, to being more open and being more um, understanding our perspectives or we can kind of close off and then being able to sit with it for me means being for ourselves grounding in our own experience. Yeah. Yeah. One of the pastors who I interviewed said that I think off camera to me says we're all, we're all recovering racist. Yeah. And, and even, I mean, we talk about the people of Grand Saline that I interviewed in no way am I trying to make an indictment of them or their racism or, or talk down to any of them. Mm. And that was an intention of the film is to be very neutral and give everyone a voice. Because look, we're all on this journey together. And if I no way better than anyone in Grand Saline, especially you put a microscope, mm. also known as a camera on someone, mm. and you're going to see things that, that maybe don't look as pretty. And I'm, the same thing would happen to me if you put a camera on me. Yeah. And so I think the first step is to not judge anyone else, but just say, hey, you're down... You know, may, you're you're all on this path, and maybe we're in different places, and but we can help each other along to get to this better place of recovery where we're not we're not being biased or, or racist. Mm. So um, we'll talk a little bit more about kind of where you're heading as a filmmaker and what you're looking forward to, or any, either as a viewer. Oh, first of all, we go into the viewer aspect, and then we can go into the the filmmaker aspect, but. Uh, Anything else coming up for you that you're looking at or um, as far as films go or anything that uh, you think kind of also continues this conversation perhaps? Um, anything coming up for you that... Well, so the the distribution of Man on Fire is something I'm very involved in. And right now we're setting up campus tours and, uh-huh. and trying to connect with universities where we can screen the film and then chase the producer and I can come down there and do a post-screening Q&A. Mm-hmm. And even in some cases, we're setting up scenarios where we teach a workshop that that deals with race and deals with cinema and how we can talk about it and use that as a vehicle for, for discussion. Yeah, it's good. It's good. So in other words, like the, um, the different films give a discussion period for the viewers to talk back, you mean, or talk, exactly. talk having a discussion? Exactly. So we can yeah. show the film and, and we're still developing exactly what the workshop may look like, but 
let's say maybe I can bring in clips uh, from the film that aren't necessarily in the film mm. and say, okay, this person says this about, uh, well, look about, we have a black president. There's no racism anymore. Did I say mm. like, well, we can now use that as a point of discussion, talk about, okay, where is he coming from with that? And, and go from there and just have that very open discussion. Cause that's, I think things are becoming challenging today to have, even discussion. And this is probably more of a criticism of maybe the left, which I identify with mm. where it's like, if, if they tiptoe around so many things where I think, I think having open-ended discussions like, Hey, we all have different perspectives. Where are they coming from? Different point of views that come from someplace. Let's mm. talk about that so we can all grow from it. Yeah, I think definitely. I think I agree that we have we, this kind of back and forth of the culture that we talk, they call politically correct, but I think at the same time, I think we, 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 the, the core of it is the um, importance of talking about how people, people's experiences inform their um, reactions and responses mm-hmm. uh, rather than thinking about that their um, race, I guess, informs that. It's more like how, where they're coming from culturally and where they're coming from, you know, growing up and all these, all these uh, you know, like we think about the, our biologies are basically the same. You know, we're not, yeah. we, there's no... The, the idea of a race is so, um, in some ways, ridiculous because, you know, we're all human beings. We all have the same biology. So um, trying to understand culturally how cultural uh, influences, it's my perspective that um, we all have different influences in our life experience and then culture and communities and how integrating those communities and making sure we have a good uh, flow of ideas and being able to be um, not attributed to you know, quote unquote biology or something, and these kind of these kind of uh, myths about uh, you know the race biology. I guess is such a still a pervasive idea. You know, that's an interesting point because what I hear you saying is that racism is not something you're born with. Mm. Kids aren't racist; they yeah. learn it's something learned. Yeah, it's socialized. So, so if yeah. it's learned, you can be it can be unlearned. So therefore, it takes a little bit of the. I guess you're not saying that you are a racist. You would say someone is acting as a racist. Yeah, it depends on how where their influences are and their cultural experiences. Yeah. So they kind of, you know, they kind of limit themselves. They are limited by whatever reason to taking in or digesting information from, you know, one source and they accept that as just as being the facts and that's the way things are and that the standards and the, the the way in which we perceive the world is just through that lens, and then when someone comes in with coming from a very different cultural or uh, experiential background, uh, it just you know is a reaction of uh, violence sometimes or d- different degrees of repulsion or aversion or yeah, and how to kind of bridge form a bridge with empathy. Yeah, because it would probably give someone who was coming from an experience that caused them to be very bias very uh, very racist give them a little more i don't know if it's patience or a little more room to evolve because mm. all of a sudden if you start really being hard on someone I'm not saying we don't you know maybe we should be hard on people yeah. but it doesn't give them room to, to reflect they're going to get defensive right away yeah so there's probably there's probably places or times to be really really hard and there's times to give people space to say hey Here's a different way of looking at things. Mm. And I think even for myself, that's people giving me patience. Not that I was some hardcore racist, yeah. but 
I definitely have bias to this day and and people giving me space and patience is has been much more I think productive in in my recovering than someone call it just being judgmental in a way or writing me off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree and I think in my own process it's been uh something to separate that uh you know the, the idea of the matrix of the, you know the individual, their culture, their all the different ways in which they're informed by um all the different factors that inform them, you know? So uh, we think about, you know, race, gender, and uh, class as being the three major, you know, um, matrices in which we understand uh, our own experience, you know, where we're coming from ethnically, you know, from ethnicity, uh, we're coming from our, our gender or our conforming or non-conforming, and where we come from with uh, our economic, our abilities to, you know, buy and, get access to, to uh, resources. So, um, yeah. So what else, what else is, uh, like, you know, was like, as far as your trajectory as a filmmaker, what, what are you looking about or what's reflecting on themes or ideas that you're looking towards? Uh, but is this something like when you're, when you're looking, do you think about, uh, uh do you have, for your future films, would you think now about it or how does that process, which is something organically that comes up or is anything, any pots boiling now or any pots on the, yeah, I think there's always got to be pots on the stove. Yeah, even if on a slow simmer. And Chase and I are developing a doc that looks at First Amendment rights. That's something that's slowly stewing. And then I have a, a fiction film that takes place in Miami that also looks at some questions of identity and race uh, through the eyes of kids again. So I'm I'm, I'm doing. Going that direction, back to that direction. From David, right? Yeah, from, David, from David, yeah. yeah. David is about that, yeah. So those are probably the two projects that are most kind of in development. And I have a number of other projects that are also working on with Patrick. Again, looking at documentary, looking at larger pictures of fundamentalism and democracy. and mm. So there's always stuff. Yeah, happening. good, good. And uh, as far as uh, documentary versus, uh, you know... Um, regular filmmaking or narrative filmmaking, uh, how do you find, uh, what's your take on, is, you know, the different aesthetics or different aspects of those two um, genres? Yeah, I, I like both of them. Yeah. And I think in some ways documentary actually gives a little more freedom for inform. It's a little more inform, yeah, inform, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and how to approach it, how to approach it, yeah. especially nowadays. There's, there's a lot of, just it feels like there's a lot of freedom given to the mixture of cinematic elements within documentaries. Especially if you, if you look back 20 years, you have the BBC style documentary, sometimes mm-hmm. even with a a, v, a voice person or a, a host in there. And from where we were 20 years ago to now, it's just there's a demand for let's have a cinematic experience. There's no, there's no excuse for having flawed aesthetics or anything like that. Like this should be a a cinematic experience at the level of seeing a fiction, high end fiction film. And I like that. It doesn't always have to be that way, but the spectrum is opened there and that's nice. And so I'm trying to think about that as I approach the narrative film too, which we tend to fall into certain form and it because it works but mm. how can i also maintain that freedom and approach it with that freedom and so that's 
more of a challenge. But both I'm very interested in. Good, good. Thank you. So as we wind down, um, we have a few more minutes, but I think we'll just uh, talk a little bit more about um, the uh, any, anything you're watching or, or, or reading or any, anything you're consuming uh, in, the, in the general um, you know, atmosphere that uh, you want to kind of plug or give a little shout out to uh, any other uh, artists or writers or anything that you're, um, anything you want to talk about or as a viewer, I mean? Well, let's see what I've been looking at. I mean, I listen, listen to podcasts a bunch. Yeah. Listen to the New York Times Daily. I don't know if that's... Oh, good. Yeah, the New York Times Daily. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure, anything. Yeah, any, any topic, yeah. Uh, so... And I mean, I've been watching Errol Morris's new stuff like Wormwood. I really okay. was inspired by that. And, yeah. and just meeting other filmmakers. I'm working on this other short doc series called Kunstler, mm-hmm. which is four minute profiles of artists uh, pretty much around New York City. So it's been inspiring. I'm working that with uh, a co producer, Sandra Bertolanfi. And so that's been something that we're now doing this, the festival circle with. So the reason to say that other artists that I've been meeting, whether it's illustrators or singers, and it's just been inspiring. So, yeah. yeah. It's so interesting with Wormwood. I, I believe I started, I, I heard about it and then I started to watch a little bit of it. Um, and like anyone, you know, it gets, you're always, there's always the scheduling and all this kind of thing. Even with consuming, you have to find time to watch it. But uh, it was interesting how the um, exploration of, I guess it's about the Cold War. It's about the, uh, communist uh, inquisitions, inquisitions into communism, and how the uh, the other otherification of uh, you know people who uh, are left leaning or sympathizers or communists, and how all these connect. How we have this pattern of you know demonizing and otherizing uh, people based on any kind of uh, tag that you can put on them, and uh, the ability to uh, the quick ability to say these people are you know. Uh, don't deserve, not deserving, or very bad in the McCarthy era, and and how all these—it's not just about. Uh, there's so many different factors in the otherification of people, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Good, good. So thanks so much for being here, and yeah, we'll just wrap you. up the interview. Thanks so much. Yeah. And Let if you have any closing thoughts, yeah. I would say if people want to learn more about Man on Fire, they can mm-hmm. check it out at manonfirefilm.com. Yeah. And if people are interested in hosting a screening, whether it's at university or community screening there's a link on there to get more information good i definitely recommend people do that. i think it's a great film to really sit with and meditate on and, that, and i was just saying about the the idea that it extends itself into conversation extends itself into uh, a dialogue and invites that kind of a, a response and i hope that people will do that thank you thank you vj thank you for having me on this ends the truth to power show on radio for brooklyn I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and taking us out is going to be one more song from the band Winter's album, a newly released album, Ethereality. Please enjoy this song, and uh, please tune in to the What is Love show coming up on Sunday at 2 p.m., where I'll be guest hosting, and I'll be inviting uh, the authors of A Return to Eros. So please tune in to ReadyForBrooklyn.com or through the app. And listen in on the What is Love show on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com. Thank you.